Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All Hit Radio To the X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and we're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you would like to um, just uh, check us out, it's very simple, www.xzbn.net, and that will give you all the other fine programming that is available to you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network. My guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Jonathan Whitcomb. He is a cryptozoologist. Now, while viewing an expedition video by Paul Nation, he noticed a high level of credibility in the testimonies of eyewitnesses of what is called the reopen of Yumboy Island in Papua New Guinea. He then began and became involved in living pterosaur investigations, exploring the part of Yumboy Island in 2004. Joining me now to tell us more about this fascinating story is Jonathan Whitcomb. And Jonathan, welcome to the X-Zone. Oh, thank you very much, Rob. Great to be here. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you became involved in investigating these flying reptiles. Yes, well, um, around 2003, I learned about sighting, sighting reports in South America. And as I, I followed up on that, tried to get information, I got in mm-hmm. touch with Pollination of, of Texas. And he had been there on the expedition uh, and, uh, and and more than once, in fact, and that's how I got fascinating. I was a forensic videographer specializing in um, uh, legal video for attorney firms in Southern California, mostly. And I, I recognized that these these natives were telling the truth. Um, they weren't making up fantastic stories; they're just saying what they saw. And um, so I got fascinated, and I eventually became so involved that I led my own expedition the next year in 2004. What was the the truth that the natives were telling you that, you know, you recognized as a professional videographer, forensic videographer, that they were telling the truth, but what was it that they saw, and what was the truth that they were telling you? Well, part of it was that they were, they were the, led me to believe that they were very honest, was that there was no fantastic stories. They weren't reciting their legends or mm-hmm. their... their um, their superstitions. They just said, like, well, I saw this light fly at night, you know, and it was going like that. We call it a roping, you know, and most of them were like that. And then there was an exception where you have somebody that actually sees something that uh, could have been a terrorist, and that exception was a, a teenage boy named um, Gideon Coro, who was very fortunate to be able to, to interview uh, in 2004 when I was exploring. So what was it that these natives saw at night? Well, it's a glow. It generally lasts about maybe five, six seconds mm-hmm. around then, that, that time. And it goes from either one mountain to another or from a mountain to the coast or back again. Right. And I got some statistics when I came back. and I wrote a scientific paper in a peer-reviewed journal, and it showed that there, it's not a huge, strong evidence, but it does suggest that 
since the um, the light is seen more going from a mountain to the reefs early in the, at night, and then late at night is seen more often going from the coast inland toward the mountains. It does suggest that it is a a flying creature that is uh, eating fish or other seafood on the reefs at night. What does this flying creature look like? Well, um, when I interviewed uh, Gideon, he said it was had a, uh, a very long tail. I, I, I asked him, and I was videotaping this while I was doing it, I asked him how long is the tail, and he looked away from me down at the ground, looked back and forth at the ground, uh, as if he was trying to imagine what it was like. And then he looked right back at me, he looked straight in my eyes and said, seven meter, which is seven meters and 23 feet. And uh, he had no hesitancy in that. So this is a very large creature that they have in Ropen, in the, on Humboldt Island. So have you yourself ever seen um, one of these creatures? Uh, up until now, I've never had a, you know, a sighting that was clear enough that I could say it was probably a living terrace, or I have seen a couple things uh, over the years that uh, suggest a possibility, but I don't mention them much because there's just too much possibility of them being other things. But I, I do interview people from all over the world, and mm -hmm. that's where I'm, I get my conviction that these are real animals. There's no hoaxing involved or misidentifications. Have you ever seen any skeletal remains or any fossils to further collaborate the claims of these people who say they have actually seen one of these uh, reptiles, dinosaurs? No, I haven't uh, seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. I have um, analyzed uh, for some time, especially last year, uh, a photograph uh, that appears to be around the middle of the 19th century, or the 1860s, 1870s, of an apparent pterosaur, a very large <coughs> and I did an analysis um, in conjunction with analysis done by a, a, a physicist in California, and we both uh, independently concluded that this, the photograph is genuine. Have any of the members of the, the established scientific community ever given you a, a um, verification that this is actually a prehistoric or a creature that has yet to been discovered. We seem to be a ways away from that. This is still well within the boundaries of cryptozoology. Uh, we rely mainly on eyewitnesses. We have scientists who not only support us, mm -hmm. but they actually have witnessed it occasionally. One man in uh, Perth, Australia, had an incredible sighting. He's in the he was working in the scientific field at the time. He's retired now, I'm sure. Right. But that was in 1997 in Perth, Australia. And uh, we have um, more recent sightings uh, where the, the, people, the eyewitnesses are, are credible, either working in science or, or, or in uh, professional positions where they wouldn't dare um, perpetrate a hoax as it could injure their professional life. Here we are in the year 2018 with all this modern technology at our fingertips. Are there any videos of this flying reptile? Are there any photos, recent photos? Well, yeah, we have we have a, a video footage in North Carolina from Raleigh, North Carolina, from uh, just uh, last year. But unfortunately, was, I suspect it was probably a real pterosaur. But unfortunately, it was taken by a, um, by a lady who's uh, who's working in the veterinary field and she was in a bus uh, mm -hmm. and it was going the wrong way and it's just it's too far away to really say it's not something we can really say is very solid evidence sure. for it because it's just too not good enough i i know for a fact there are model and hobby shops that were selling uh model pterodactyl kits that actually flew remote control so yeah, is we there... always have to be aware of that yeah be, be careful uh, the thing is, the sighting reports in general, mm -hmm. they go back into the years and decades and centuries in a way that, that leads us just to determine that there's uh, not too much misidentification from uh, remote control. I mean, in, in, if you go to individual sighting report, of course, it's definitely you have to look at each sighting report in itself and see what what's uh, the credibility in terms of... Um, honesty, credibility, and uh, misidentification credibility. 
those are two different issues in credibility. But in general, the sightings go back in history for, uh, in a way that suggests that they're really, in general, these are real animals. For example, um, we go right back for, to uh, 1944 and, and um, on the mainland of New Guinea, uh, mm-hmm. where Dwayne Hodgkinson was a soldier for the American forces. Uh, and his description of this huge uh, pterodactyl, as he called it, and obviously in 1944, there would be no, um, you know, model pterodactyl flying around that's the size of an airplane, you know. How about a kite? Kite? Well, uh, not where he was in the jungle in a remote remote area. Nobody would be flying a kite the size of a Piper Tri-Pacer airplane. But you mean in general, the yeah. situation? Yes. Yeah. Well, um yeah, that's, that's a possibility for a, a particular sighting, perhaps, mm-hmm. but the general overview of what happens with the sighting suggests that these are not uh, that kind of uh, that kind of sighting. For example, well, let's just give a few examples. In Antwerp, Ohio, a few years ago, uh, the eyewitness uh, said he saw the, what looked like a pterodactyl two years in a row in the middle of summer both times, flying over the Maumee Mal- River in Antwerp, Ohio. And both uh, both times, or at least one time especially, he saw it chasing uh, sparrows or some other bird, he called them sparrows, that flew over the, the bridge. And he saw one time this um, pterodactyl, as he called it, with a long tail, actually catch the sparrow hmm. in its mouth while it flew over the bridge. That's obviously not a kite. Or All right, Jonathan, stand by. We've got to take a commercial break. Exonation Jonathan Whitcomb is our guest of this hour. His website is www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. This is The Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and iHeartRadio. And on the Exxon channel on Simul TV. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games, No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. 
As this is the first book in the esoteric series, modern esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. And for all the programming available to you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Our guest this hour is cryptozoologist and author Jonathan Whitcomb. Um, Jonathan, with all the... Let me back up a minute here. So the sightings of these... Of these um, reptiles, flying reptiles, or pterosaurs, are seen worldwide. Yes, I've I've interviewed um, eyewitnesses from five continents directly. You know, the eyewitnesses mm-hmm. themselves. I'm not dealing with usually with indirect kind of things. I communicate with eyewitnesses directly, and um, there's certain things that that fall into place with correlating with each other that are from eyewitness in different con- different countries, different cultures, different languages, different belief systems and and backgrounds that uh, correlate. And that's convinced me for sure that these are real animals. What kind of correlation, sir? Well, for example, I'll give you a common type, which is seen worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, featherless flying creature, usually fairly large, uh, long tail, often described with a, a flange at the end of the tail. I, they use terms like diamond shape or, or triangle mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. It's something at the end of the tail. And um, uh, sometimes they describe a long neck. Sometimes they describe a particular type of head crest, and this is falls into place a number of times where it's sort of like a long cone sticking out parallel to the beak, but sticking out the opposite direction behind the, the head. Now, pterosaur fossils have a great variety of head crests. So um, what we have here is a survival of uh, a particular type of pterosaur that's very specific, and it's just um, apparently dominating a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways that, that, that where pterosaurs live around the world. How come we don't hear any about this in the media, sir? Well, we do sometimes. Uh, the problem we have in Western countries, you have to differentiate, you know, between different countries and different cultures. In the West, like the United States, Canada, and, and um, many European countries. But, um, the problem is it's just taken for granted that all, all these type of animals became extinct many, many millions of years ago. And this has been in our culture for so long, for generations. I mean, I could show you things from... Uh, newspaper article in the late 19th century where they have several newspapers reporting a sighting in California, for example. And you can see that the cultural bias against that possibility of living pterodactyls is still there in at least one of those newspaper accounts. But we still have some occasional newspapers and, and other reports in the media. So am I to understand, sir, that there are fossils of the pterosaurs? Well, there are many fossils of pterosaurs. It's just that maybe don't have um, uh, we don't have any that I know of that are precisely like this I in see. terms of it's a ramp ringoid pterosaur with a cone-like head crest that grows very large. We have some ramp ringoid pterosaurs, long-tailed pterosaurs, that do get large, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have this type of head crest. And we have head crests in some pterosaurs that are like what it's reported commonly, except they're not ramparinkoids or a different type. So it's, it's an unusual kind of, a, the, what we call the ropen, a modern ramparinkoid pterosaur, a long-tailed pterosaur. The ropen is unusual from the perspective of a paleontologist who just knows about it from fossils. They think it's just, it's just too weird because it doesn't fit the fossils that they know so far. That doesn't mean that 
we won't have any discoveries in the future that, mm-hmm. are, that are that are show us uh, uh, this type of animal and fossils. It's just that right now, as far as I know, we don't have fossils exactly like this. So it would assume it would seem that the pterosaur falls in the same category as the Loch Ness monster, a lot of uh, you know sightings, yeah. and and Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah I believe so. I I, I, don't, I haven't studied the as much about the Loch Ness. I've been there before when mm-hmm. I was young, but haven't studied it recently. I, I know there are a lot more sightings that I've heard of than are, than are commonly reported in the media from Loch Ness, though. Well, so, yeah, I, I can understand that because, you know, the Loch Ness Monster is a cash cow for the uh, Loch Ness area. So, of course, they'd want to keep the, the, uh, the sightings in the news to ramp up, you know, tourism. But what I mean is, whenever you have a documentary, for example, that shows a Loch Ness creature, mm-hmm. you only have a tiny fraction of the, the eyewitness account. Right. A tiny fraction, yeah. Um, are there any references that you're aware of, of the pterosaur in mythology? Well, yeah, it goes back into dragons. A few centuries ago, the, the word pterosaur didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It wasn't part of our language or, or any other languages. Uh, it came about um, about the time as the American Revolution, or late 1700s, uh, as I recall. And uh, people before then would just call flying, uh, featherless, uh, long-tailed uh, creatures. They call them dragons. And they have, of course, that's an English word. They sure. have whatever, depending on what language you're dealing with. But basically, we think of those as being dragon legends. So are you are you saying, sir, or are you speculating? Are you putting up the hypothesis that the the legend of dragons may of flying dragons may actually be a fact? Oh, definitely, yeah. There's, I don't, I know that there's some of them, of course, are fictional, and, mm-hmm. and uh, when you have a you know a real account of an actual event, and then things happen in, over a period of time, and things are are changed in the in the records. Um, so you do have uh, uh, accounts that, in a present form, would be have obvious uh, fictional characteristics in them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that everything about it was fictional right. know, at the time it happened. To you. Why isn't there more of a push by the members of the scientific community to do more expeditions in order to find the pterosaur? Well, you have to look at how that could take place, and you see there's a huge problems. Um, it has to start with a person, you know, not just organization that suddenly mm-hmm. a university decides to go on a road search for living pterosaurs. It has to start with a, an individual, and when you do that, you, what are you going to do? Uh, one professor at a university going to say, oh, let's go out and look for living pterosaurs. How is he going to do that? How can he promote that? It's, uh, well, wouldn't he be able to promote it if, in fact, he did have proof? Yeah, but they, generally the, the the problems with um, traditional um, culture in mm-hmm. universities, for example, is if you try something really weird that uh, it's not going to be funded. Funding goes to things which are basically already accepted uh, to a great level. In other words, it's something that you, if you, you make a documentary, you know, that's um, that once you, you want to get funding for it, mm-hmm. it has to be something that that's already very uh, popular in the belief systems of, of of everybody involved. But doesn't that come with getting the information out there and allowing the public to make up their own mind? Well, I think that definitely that's what I'm trying to do for years. Mm-hmm. I've been working on this for 15 years, and my associates and I have been doing different things, trying different things, but um, it's a very difficult, challenging situation. We, um, uh, eyewitnesses, for example, I've learned over the years, and especially recent years, that the vast majority of eyewitnesses to these creatures, they never contact me. For example, I, I, um, there are very few exceptions. For example, I, I get an eyewitness report, say, from... Um, from back east in the United States, and uh, the person tells me about this sighting they had of a pterosaur, and they tell me, oh, I mentioned it to, to my friend or relative, and they've seen it too, or they know somebody that's seen it. Well, none of those other people ever get in touch with me. I, I know that because of the detail. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm only getting a tiny fraction 
of um, the actual sightings. And so it's people, and after I forgot your original question to let into that, but um, it's, it's a challenging situation. No, my, my, my question was that would it not be more advantageous to have evidence and have proof, and would it not be to the, yeah. to the credit or to the likelihood of getting funding if the public was made more aware of this? It seems like you're in a catch-22 situation. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, we... Um, we do have a Rex uh, uh, Epayapi. He's a native from Papua New Guinea. He's now on an expedition on Umboy Island, the same place where I was mm-hmm. years ago. And he has a camera. He has funding. He, rich, he did have funding. Money's run out by now. He's been there for many weeks. And it's just a challenging situation. They have a, it's a long story, but basically, uh, when I left Umboy in 2004 to return to the United States, I came to a complete... Uh, realization that that island only has one large ropen that is a permanent uh, inhabitant of the island. In other words, um, a ropen has established its territory, and what other, whatever other creatures of that species come to the island, it's generally more temporary for mating or for challenging the, the ropen that's there. So anybody going to Rumboy, um, even if they're there for many weeks, mm-hmm. even months, it's very difficult to find that particular animal in the deep jungles. And they're nocturnal animals, you know, they don't come out in the daytime in you, generally. It's All right. very challenging. All right, stand by, Jonathan. You and I have to take our news break. Exonation, Jonathan Whitcomb is our special guest. His website is www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. And um, we're talking about uh, Jonathan's scientific paper, Reports of Living pterosaurs in the southwest pacific which was published in creation research society's quarterly volume 45 number three are you a skeptic or you believe or send me an email exxon exxon radio tv.com and jonathan and i will be back on the other side of this break don't go away xzbn.net ABS Media I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnix, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. 
It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the Word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God. And finally, after the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Jonathan Whitcomb is our special guest this hour, Exxon Nation. He is an American writer, cryptozoologist, and we're talking about pterosaurs in America this hour here in the Exxon. First of all, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, where in the world are the most sightings of the pterosaurs taking place? That's an excellent question, and it's a little, little bit complicated. Okay. <clears throat> the... Um by far the greatest number of reports that come to me directly from eyewitnesses, they come mm-hmm. from the United States, generally the 48 contiguous states of the United States. Um, but there's a reason for that that people might not be aware of. Um, my web pages are in English mostly. I have other languages mostly in English. And Americans are, are very commonly, they do searches online and they, everybody has almost has a computer and goes online. So the reason we get more reports from the United States is not that that's where the animals live, but that's where people live who have access to find me and find out that other people have sightings and to to report to me. But based on your research and uh, the research of others outside of the United States, where would you say that the heaviest concentration of the pterosaurs are? Well, it's a little speculative, at least a little. But I'll give you <clears throat> an example. On the declaration page for living pterosaurs, if anybody knows how to spell pterosaur, just let, let Google a uh, pterosaur declaration, and you'll get to the flyingcreature.com page. It lists very, a great deal of detail on, on where these sightings take place. Canada, for example, here's a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight sighting reports. Over how long a period, sir? Uh, let's see, this one is Edmondson, 2015, British Columbia, 2010, uh, Brampton, Kirchner, Ontario, 1960, Ontario in 2016, Ontario near Detroit, 2012, Quebec, 1998 or 1999, Saskatchewan, 1983 for the Canada. So we're looking at between 2010 and 2018. Yeah, well, yeah, there are okay. some in the 1990s. So those are not all of the sightings, of course, in Canada. Those mm-hmm. are just some of the better ones that I've found, and they're basically uh, usually my, my own direct Now, Now, one them. question I have for you, sir. In a city like Brampton, that is right on the outskirts of metropolitan greater Toronto, how would only one person see this? What's, I'm sorry, what was the question? I said Brampton. The city of Brampton here in Ontario is part of the greater Toronto area, or what we call the GTA. Yes. Millions of people live in that area. Yeah, right. How could only one person... Like bat wings, yeah. Long tail with a diamond shape at the the tip. Mm -hmm. So how come only one person would see it? Well, that's the thing. It's not one person. It could be a thousand persons, or probably not good view. I should should clarify that. I don't think there would be a thousand... Um, good sightings where a thousand people got a good view of the animal, mm-hmm. uh, especially not that that particular day. What happens is these are generally nocturnal animals, and it's just rare that they come out in the daytime. And if it does, you might get uh, a, a, a select group, for a select group of people are just lucky enough that they get a good view of it and they actually look at it. What what happens is that among those people that see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a portion of them will search online to find out what's going on. What was that that I saw? 
that right. it could be 100, for example, 100 in the Brampton area. Let's say as a guess, you know, just for example, 100 people will look it up and say, oh, there is a, people who do see these things. Oh, good. Then they forget about it and say, well, good, I'm not crazy for seeing something like that. And then there might be only one person that actually sends me an email. Okay. That's common. I can tell it's something like that because of the way that um, sighting reports get to me and how I know who else has seen something like that from the eyewitnesses who talk with me. How would the pterosaur have originally gotten over to North America? Well, I get that. that yeah, I get that reporting. We usually think of this kind of animals that it could exist if it's in a remote part of the world, like. Um, like a, a remote island, yeah. like Humboldt Island, for example. And that's what I originally was thinking, too, when mm-hmm. I was starting investigating. And my associates, Garth Gessman, David Wetzel, uh, two other Americans that followed me a few weeks after my expedition, they also explored Humboldt Island and had their own interviews and so on, and searches. Anyway, uh, yeah, we generally had this uh, idea that was common that, you know, we need to go to this remote jungle island, you right. know, and just search there till we find a, a living terrace or, well... As soon as we got back and I started publishing web pages on these things, I get all kinds of sighting reports coming to me, people that have seen them, not necessarily recently. Some of them are just, I saw one yesterday or I saw one last week. But some of them go back decades even, or a few years or even you know, decades, and tell me the reports that they've seen in the United States. Uh, what it is is they didn't just arrive. We have historical records that go back in the Ohio River area of the a Piasaw bird, which is probably a pterosaur, and how it attacked people and so on. We have some reports South America, this big bird, bat, the big bat of uh, Venezuela, and um, killing people, and so they had the people had to get out there and kill the animal. Anyway, going back in history, we keep seeing these things all over the world. So I don't think they ever, they ever migrated here from some jungle somewhere. They've just always been here. Um. How come mainstream media would not carry this story? Like, if somebody in Brampton, Ontario, yeah. contacts a website about seeing this flying reptile, why would they not call the local media to see if anybody else had or make a report of it? People call the local media for UFO sightings. Why wouldn't they do the same yeah. for a flying reptile? Yeah, well, it's they do. In fact, people do contact newspapers, and uh, sometimes a person will contact... Uh, a uh, university, or um, some people can't call the police. It just doesn't do any good. They don't get anywhere that way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a person will contact a forest ranger type of uh, type of uh, professional, that kind of thing. It doesn't get anywhere there either. Um, it's just that there's the only people that can really listen, open the open mind, are cryptozoologists who specialize in this narrow field of cryptozoology. And so we have, a new, we have a couple of newspapers in North Carolina just uh, a few weeks ago that put articles out about sightings that are, seem to be uh, going on in North Carolina, particularly Raleigh. And then we got those two newspapers that published something on it. So what do we know about the pterosaur? What do we know about its habits? Uh, what do we know about... Well, what do we know? It's, it, yeah, it gets a little complicated and... Uh, I have to tell you the truth, though, even though it's, it, it can uh, cause some people to be put off, but mm-hmm. there's more than one species, and this is you know, we have to take it in perspective. Generally, if you have a particular kind of kind of animal on the earth, generally it's not found in one species that has no relatives. Generally, it's one particular type of a general order of a type of animal. And it's the same with the eyewitness reports we get. Apparently, there's two major types a long-tailed and a short-tailed. And um, it's hard to say sometimes when somebody uh, sees one, they're so shocked mm-hmm. that they might not look at the tail. So some of these reports, I don't know if it's a, if it's the one type or the other. It just seems to be a pterosaur. The person is so shocked. So it's difficult. They're generally, they are nocturnal, though, and they're not commonplace. Obviously, we would have them discovered long ago if they're commonplace. We would capture them by now. But they're not commonplace. They're not necessarily very rare, but especially the larger ones, there there are enough of them that they can be a danger to humans sometimes. They can be dangerous, especially in certain places like uh, a certain area of British Columbia. 
they can be dangerous apparently to people. Um, generally, they're not. You know, I, I, I found, uh, my producer found online for me the report from Brampton, Ontario, going back to November the 1st, 2004, at uh, 8 p.m. in the evening. And I'm looking at this saying, could be a misidentification of a hawk or a large bird of prey, because it had, this is a quote from the report. The main, uh, the main witness watched astonished as he thought that it looked like a miniature pterodactyl. It had a wingspan span of about four feet. It was gray in color and did not appear to have any feathers. How often well, are these misidentifications? Well, I'll tell you what I do. See, I'm, I try to approach this scientifically, and, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you what happens. Um, each sighting, I, I, if you ever look up the phrase apparent pterosaur, A-double-P-A-R-N-T, pterosaur, you'll find the, the, the search results will have my web pages dominating over anything else on mm -hmm. the first page of Google, second page of Google, because they recognize that when you're dealing with one sighting, there is a possibility that there is a misidentification or something like that. There's a possibility. What I, I deal with is the overall case where it's practically impossible for all of these to be misidentifications. For example, this particular one, Brampton, you said it was what size? It was kind of a... Had a wingspan of four feet. Four feet, yeah. Well, let's look right here, okay? I have here a list of, uh, of the wingspan estimates. Of course, these are estimates, which mm -hmm. can be off, of course. They're just human estimates. Um, but I see four examples of four feet, four examples of five feet, four examples of six yeah. feet, two from seven feet. This is a common reporting. Uh, this is a total of, I think, 74 uh, uh, reports that have an estimated wingspan. All right, listen, we've got to take our final break, uh, Jonathan. Please stand by. When we come back, let's talk more about this. ExoNation, Jonathan Whitcomb is our special guest, and we're talking about pterosaurs this hour, flying reptiles, also known in earlier days as dragons. If you'd like to find out more information about Jonathan, visit his website, www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and Jonathan and I will be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simul TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, sci-fi, and horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. The new non-fiction book, Razor of Madness, is similar to cult movies like Clockwork Orange, Dragon's Tattoo, or The Other Side of Hell. Wayne Morin Jr. and Thomas Lee Howe will expose widespread and systematic deficiencies in this thought-provoking tell-all novel. Mind control rages among scholars in law schools. Human rights are ignored while thought reform and mental manipulation are accepted practices used as behavior modification. Dr. Louis Jolion West comes to mind. Media and public scrutiny shows that United States mental hospitals are in fact destructive murder industries. Razor of Madness Exposé Novel details this epidemic through an in-depth professional and personal investigation. For decades there has been a revolving door policy that still releases killers and pedophiles back into society. The maestro of mind control continues to haunt America to this very day. Razor of Madness is available in paperback or as a downloadable ebook at Amazon.com. I'm William S. Peckham. If you enjoy a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, 
then you'll love my novel, From Out of the Woodwork. It's the story of a young Toronto contractor, Sean Kennedy, who buys derelict homes, guts them, and turns them into multifamily dwellings. Slums just waiting to happen. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, the house fights back. Former owners unexpectedly come out of the woodwork as he starts the destruction. The apparitions come to him when he touches old books, reads hidden letters, rummages through old boxes, finds a locket or reads a discovered manuscript of a murder mystery. From Out of the Woodwork will take you from 1899 to the horror of the World Trade Center, September 11, 2001. Check out From Out of the Woodwork on my website, www.williamspeckham.com. Welcome back, everyone. Jonathan Whitcomb is my guest. His website is www.jonathanwhitcomb.com. He is an American writer and cryptozoologist. Uh, before we went to the break, uh, Jonathan, you were giving me some indication about the sizes of the wingspans of the of, of alleged sightings of pterosaurs. So please continue. Yeah, and, um, so I'll show you where this comes from. Okay. Uh, these are 74, let me double check that, mm-hmm. 74 out of 128 uh, sighting reports that I felt were more credible and should have been analyzed, and I did analyze them at the at the end of 2012 and early in 2013. I published my findings and so on. But these 74 uh, eyewitness uh, wingspan estimates range anywhere from less than two feet mm-hmm. up to 46 feet. Wow! The interesting thing I found was <clears throat> was this, as it's a very continuous, even grading all the way up here. In other words. If there were uh, a significant number of, for example, misidentification of birds, you would have some kind of bump in the statistics for bird sizes. There's nothing like that. All right, but it's isn't it isn't it continuous. isn't it true that the California condor has a wingspan of nine feet, and then we go down to eagles; they have a, a wingspan up to seven and a half feet. Buzzards, yeah. four and a half feet. Uh, hawks four and a half feet you know so we go down the the list and to me this kind of puts the misidentification possibility number a lot higher than the credible sightings well you have to remember that when you're when you're dealing with them there's two things you're dealing with you the, the overall data of course which I'd, I'd like to talk about more but also the individual descriptions which have a featherless appearance mm-hmm. For example, no primary feathers is one thing I get sometimes. No primary feathers, featherless appearance. It flies differently than the birds. Some of the people I witnessed actually know the common birds of their area. They know what the, um, hawks and eagles and blue, blue herons and so on look like. I agree, you know, but if there's a bird in the area that they're unaware of, a misidentification could happen. Well, you'd have to look at the individual sighting report and see that probability. But generally, when you look at the statistics, it's not just uh, eagle sizes. See, for example, you have four, nine feet, four, ten feet, one, ten and a half feet, two, eleven, two, twelve, two, there's here, twelve and a half, thirteen, 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 fifteen, sixteen, sixteen, seventeen, 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 eighteen, twenty, 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 twenty. But my, 20 quest, half, my question, sir, is at this point, hearing all these statistics, how did the person making the report, how were they able to properly estimate the size of the wingspan? Were they using binoculars in order to say, well, the, 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 um, the object did not have any feathers? Like, there's, a, there's so many variables here. Well, we need to go to individual reports to get... <clears throat> to, to that, for example, a sighting mm-hmm. a few years ago in Lakewood, California, um, not too far from where I lived at the time. I, I live in Utah now. But, uh, much more like in California. This, this sighting, when the eyewitness went out and looked at it, it was the middle of the day, no obstruction to her view. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the distance from the animal's t- end of the tail to her nose was just like, just a, uh, I don't know, it was just, just a matter of feet. It was just very close, a few feet away, and she got a very good look at it. And 
by the way, about about wingspans, though, we have to remember that 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 kind of guess is not helped too much by um, by binoculars because what you need is a reference, and mm-hmm. that's the problem. When people are estimating, sometimes it's when the, the the bird is flying in the air. Those estimates can be more off than the ones where they're flying close. So, for example, in uh, uh, near the University of Irvine uh, in California, uh, California State University, Irvine, that sighting a few years ago, the creature flew just low over the road, Campus Drive, and the, there's a long tail, and the eyewitness saw that the creature's length from the end of the beak to the end of the tail was pretty close to the same thing as the width of the, of the road. It was right in front of him. I went over and I walked it off myself. I paced it off. It's 30 feet. So there's not a 30-foot-long um, uh, eagle with right. a, a long tail and no feathers. And what time of what time of day was that sighting, sir? That one, it was in the daytime. It was in clear daylight. It was not uh, not anything. Wow. Well, I don't remember the time, but I'm sure it was day daytime. Is that a populated part of uh, of California where the sighting took place? Well, some of it is. That particular exact location is, is between a, a marshy area that's fenced off mm-hmm. on one side and then a, um, a nature reserve on the other, where occasionally you do have people walking through there. But, um, again, it's a difficult. The person that reported that, I have to say, he's a professional. I can't say exactly what he is because of uh, privacy reasons. He doesn't want anybody to know who he is, but he's either a a medical doctor, a policeman, or a lawyer, one of those three. And he reported this to me under strictest confidence that uh, his name would not get out because it does look absolutely crazy that anything like this could possibly be alive. So how do we know it is alive? Well, there's different people in different parts of the world just describe similar things. Um, for example, um, the couple in... Perth, Australia. That was mm-hmm. also very large. The, the man was uh, has he worked in the scientific field at the time. He, he estimated that the wingspan is between 30 feet and 50 feet. Right. And he was his his natural instinct for trying to estimate was more for 50 feet. But he's trying to find some way to make it 30 feet because it's just so incredible. It's, it's, his human wife were just shocked. And uh, she was ridiculed when she publicized and tried to get people to know about this. So anything that large, if it's alive, can easily kill people. And we have reports of people being attacked in British Columbia, Papua New Guinea, um, Africa. Uh, it does happen. Now, these are the bigger ones are not as common. But what happens is if you have a small one, people don't pay attention. They don't even look at it. I think it's a bird. They don't even turn their head. Um, and so the, the the smaller ones are more common, but they're just not not reported so much. So someone was attacked in British Columbia by one of these flying uh, dragons. Well, more than once. Yeah. Really? I, I'll tell you the, the the source for that, and they get more information about that. These uh, I've I've published quite a few books. Four of them are now available now. But this particular book was written by Bird from Hell. I have the second edition. This is about those uh, big pterodactyl attacks uh, in uh, British Columbia. It's by Gerald McIsaac, and he reports uh, the um, local people there, the, I don't know what you call them, the people, you know, originally the natives uh, of that area in, in the upper northern British Columbia. I see. They, uh, they have legends of these. They, they just say, don't go out at night, and they just tell everybody, don't go out at night, whatever you do. Oh, I see. So this is nothing. This is nothing that is recent, then. Oh, it's 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 going on recently. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, it was a few years ago. We had a mm-hmm. a girl that uh, she wasn't at that particular time. She wasn't attacked, but she encountered one of these things uh, accidentally, and mm. she was running and like trying to scare off the boys that she thought were teasing her, and she encountered this thing at night and was yelling, you know, and making noise, and, and it scared the creature, and it let off this kind of a vapor, she called it a smoke, a vapor out of its mouth, and then flew away. And um, I think this could be related to some of the dragon legends we have. I, I have other reports of this kind of thing, kind of a mist or a vapor that's emitted. It can be used for self-defense, but it also can be used possibly for subduing prey. 
I think that's part of where we get the idea of, of fire-breathing dragons is from that smoke-like substance that they emit from their, their mouths. Jonathan, how can people find out more about you? Well, it's, it's hard to miss me if you search um, online. I've written over a thousand web pages and blog posts. So, mm-hmm. uh, some other, I can't keep them all up because there's just too many for me to keep updating. And when I first started writing them, I was not very professional. So, are all of these blog sites uh, on on the uh, Terrasaurs? Uh, mo- almost all of my websites are on pterosaurs. Anything you find that's about that's from me is mm-hmm. probably about living pterosaurs. Yeah. We, uh, my producer, did a fast uh, search on all the all the media outlets that we have access to, and we could not find one report from a credible media outlet on anyone being attacked by a pterosaur or a flying dragon in Canada. There are a few blog spots that mention it, but when it comes to credible media sources, not one. Yeah, and we had that. That's mentioned by the author Gerald McIsaac that that basically most people don't take the report seriously. They think that somehow some fanatic uh, criminal for mm-hmm. many years has been kidnapping people as they're walking at night along the, as this. Uh, this particular road in, in their area, and they just assume it's just somebody for... But it's been going on wow. for over a decade, people disappearing. You know. All right, I want to thank you, Jonathan, for joining us tonight. And Exxon Nation, my guest this hour has been uh, Jonathan Whitcomb. You know, UFOs, no proof. Ghosts, no proof. Bigfoot, no proof. Loch Ness Monster and Lake Monsters, no proof. Fairies, no proof. Now we have dragons. With all the different people around the world who are out there investigating one of these aspects of the paranormal, not to come across another aspect that is being investigated by other members of society, well, you do the math. It just does not make any sense at all. This is Reality Radio where we take a real look into the impossible, the, pres- the, the imaginable, the world of fantasy, and try to bring people back down to earth by asking hard-hitting questions. A lot of publishers don't like us, but you know what? Too bad. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Are you or is someone you know struggling with addictions, depression, anxiety, relationships, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, grief, success, and prosperity? Do you know that your subconscious belief plays a big role in the outcome of your hard work? We can help you permanently change the beliefs that may be the reason for your struggles and failures. We care about getting you the return on your investment and the results you are looking for. We can help you be free of the limitations of your past and in realizing your highest potential. We work with people by phone and Skype. For more information, visit us at www.ritasoman.com. That's www.ritasoman.com.
Do you think you have energy problems in your home? Do you feel better when you're away than when you're home? Joey Korn is a global leader in the world of dowsing who specializes in personal energy clearing and space clearing. He can help you create an ideal energy environment in your home no matter where you live in the world. Learn about his remote spiritual house cleaning services and much more at www.dowsers.com. You can get Joey's book, Dowsing, A Path to Enlightenment, as well as other dowsing books and tools, Kabbalah books, and Walter Russell books. Joey's work is really amazing. Go to dowsers.com right now. That's D-O-W-S-E-R-S dot com or call 1-877-DOWSING. That's 1-877-369-7464. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 